City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, City Limits, and it's the first Wednesday of the month. That means it's uh, it's Transport Day with our regular commentator, John McPherson, who's on the line with us. Of course, we're pre-recording these days, and the 3CR staff, Karina, who's pressing the buttons for us, doing magnificent work. Meg Kibber's also with us. I'm Kevin Healy. How are we all? Good. Yeah, I'm okay. Good. Well, that was, that was an enthusiastic burst. Um, <laughs> we are going to talk transport later, John, but I suppose the... The most noticeable thing about transport at the moment, or certainly public transport, is that there's virtually nobody on it. Sure is. I was I was on the uh, Route 96, I think it is, the other day, and there were eight people on one of those huge, huge new trams, newish trams, you know, the three-section ones. It was really ridiculous. Mm. We could really practice our um, spacing, you know. <laughs> It's been yeah. so long since I've been on any kind of form of public transport that I'm actually, uh, like, longing to have that experience again. <laughs> I'm like, God, oh, if I could just get on a train and go somewhere else, I'd be so happy. <laughs> it would be great. They run virtually run past my door here, and I think when I, when I haven't used them since this whole thing broke out, but it's, uh, it is a problem. We'll get on to that later, actually, when we do in the second half when we talk transport specifically. But a couple of things we want to raise. Uh, I, I thought this week we should give the award for the the smartest alleged crook around the place to a bloke called Cassidy Berger. He's a former train killer who served in Afghanistan, which might explain something. But he, he has to report in on his bail conditions to the cop shop uh, and he's on bail for an aggravated, alleged aggravated burglary in court with a with a stolen car full of drugs and a heap of cash. So he turned up at the cop shop last week at Heidelberg to report in, and parked he parked the car in a no standing zone, which was pretty smart outside the cop shop. But he, but worse than that, it was a stolen car with false number plates, <laughs> and, and it was also also full of drugs and cash. <laughs> Now, I think he's going to get some sort of marks for uh, for one of the great minds of this world. <laughs> What's, well, yeah. Did he figure What's, he knew the cops so well that they'd, they'd, they'd just be understanding and say, oh, there you go, mate. <laughs> That's right. Enjoy your drugs. <laughs> anyway, I that applaud was... Applaud that kind of chutzpah, really, don't you? Yeah, yeah. It's a really big case of chutzpah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he could have at least parked it legally. I don't uh, think he knew how to do anything. Legally, by the sound <laughs> No, that's true. That's true. Uh, but the Herald Sun, of course, I think this week they have to get top marks for picking up the fact that the Deputy Chief Health Officer Annalise Van Diemen, and when you think about it, she was she was talking about James Cook, and her name was Van Diemen. So there's all sorts of connections here one could make. But she came out, I think everyone knows what she came out and said, but the Herald Sun really got into her front page. Deputy Health Chief sparks outrage with tweet likening virus outbreak to, to in parenthesis, terror of Captain Cook's in parenthesis invasion. But the great line, I love this line, it's so funny, it's so clever, it's so brilliant. 
cook, line, a stinker. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? Oh. Anyway, that's the Herald Sun. And then there was a double-page spread inside telling us how bad she was. But what she said, and this is what I want to ask you, what she said, (laughs) sudden arrival of an invader from another land, decimating populations, creating terror, forces the population to make enormous sacrifices and completely change how they live in order to survive, she said, comparing the two. Now, in terms of the indigenous population, which bit of that is actually not true? Take that as a rhetorical question, shall we, Kevin? <laughs> I think well, perhaps we ought. Perhaps, perhaps we, we ought. ought. But, to be but, really, to be uh, really picky, you'd have to argue that that, that seventeen eighty eight rather than seventeen seventy was probably the time when the invasion began, when when um, you know the first fleet arrived at Botany Bay. Because Cook was really only just only just an explorer, if you want to be really picky. Yeah, but he, he but was, yeah, he, no, he but they sort of always say Yeah. He was a precursor. History books always said he, he discovered Australia, yeah. etc. But yeah. it was interesting. I am gonna that something was I wasn't gonna say, but but Van Diemen, you know, yeah. no, not Van Diemen. Who was the guy of West Australia? Dampier. Dampier was found Western Australia more than a hundred years before. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, there were other there were other explorers who got here first. Just that he he bought it. He took it over for his most gracious Majesty and uh, all that. I'm going to put. Listen to this, folks. Hang on a tick. There you are. And that's white tea, John. Just for you today, it's white tea. I feel really. I'm, I'm really feeling this distance now, Kevin. I can't have my my cup of white tea. <laughs> Can I, I, I? You've reminded me of a story that I I wasn't going to tell today, and will probably take up more time than other things I wanted to say. But but 1988, the bicentenary of of um, of the of Philip and 1788, in Sydney, the Indigenous community had a had a camp uh, just around from Lady Macquarie's point, I think it was called. And they were overlooking the bay and then, of course, the opera house where they were going to have all the big celebrations with Hawke and company. And the first, there was a reenactment of the first fleet coming in next morning. And the day before, we went to the camp and there was a lot of people, you know, they were all talking about what they were going to do and it was, you know, what an insult it was to re- relive the first fleet. But the next morning, very early, we got there and I thought there'd be massive disruptions as the first fleet reenactment came came into the harbour. But in fact, when it happened, the people, the indigenous people, just went absolutely silent. And you could see them thinking that just, or you couldn't, you could imagine them thinking what a disaster this is. But they they couldn't express it even. And it wasn't until they'd actually come right up the harbour and gone past us that some young blokes went out in canoes and uh, put on a bit of a show. But it's just amazing. I thought they'd be really screaming and yelling, but they just went totally silent when that happened, which I found interesting that day. Mm. And it's just a, a reflection on, on all that. But well, that's um, sort of like going into mourning, was it? Yes, it was. It was like they were at a funeral just watching the hearse go by or something. Yeah, yes, that yeah. sort of thing. Yes, so um, that was that. The other one the Herald Sun beat up this week 
uh, exclusive from Geelong to Wuhan, <laughs> Chinese scientists that sent her a virus probe linked to Victorian laboratory Operation Batman. And these two Chinese scientists who'd studied here and worked here and went back to China, and somehow they've linked that up. And I, I've got no idea what, what the story had to do, but it was a great little beat-up anyway. Uh, and the other Herald Sun beat-up so, for the did week... did you read it and you don't know... Oh, Did well, I read it and they claim that they, they, they moved, one of them moved bats from Queensland to Victoria to do some study and one did something else and one's accused, worked in a laboratory at Wuhan and, uh, you know, it was almost a suggestion she may have let the whole thing out, but it, it, that's, that's currently, of course, the, the Trump right. line. So, so, in other words, it was Queensland bats started the um, Wuhan <laughs> virus and shouldn't we be proud is that was that the story? <laughs> well donald trump seems to be proud that he's got you know the most deaths in the world or something so i suppose you can number one yeah he likes to be yes. number one yeah. That's right. And the Herald Sun also came out with this tragic story. Victorian families will not be able to celebrate Mother's Day together, despite other states and territories moving to ease restrictions so that relatives can visit each other on May 10. Premier Daniel Andrews wants for families to catch up over video calls instead, as his government stands firm, etc., etc. And then they've got a woman saying how she so desperately wanted to have Mother's Day with her family, but she can't, and she's so upset. Isn't that awful? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, big, big bad Dan has got to be turned into a bogeyman if possible hmm. from the right, from the right wing because the right, the right, you know, the Murdoch press and um, so on, they don't believe we should have had lock, lockdown at all. We should have all been free to, you know, kill off mm -hmm. the oldies just as, um, you know, well as every other country. Yeah. Keep the economy going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they, they really... Um, have queried lockdown all along, haven't they? Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there, uh, there are still there are still a few even scientists around the world who are still claiming, you know, lockdown was stupid and we should have um, just um, put up with the deaths and um, and then had some of this so-called herd get this herd. Um, Immunity. immunity, yeah, which seems to be a, a, a nonsense anyhow. You know, it, it's it's not something that happens that easily, uh, and certainly not with a, with this sort of virus. It's it's it, it's the sort of thing that can take a long time to um, happen. Apparently, mm. Mm. yeah. And there's no guarantee anyway that you're immune. Well, exactly. Yeah, there's, they think they've documented people who've had who've got the virus three times, yeah. Yeah, it's mm. a bold, the herd immunity is a bold call considering yeah. um, it's a new virus. They don't yeah. know much about yeah. how it behaves. Yeah. 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 And apparently most of the people who've been talking about herd, herd immunity know nothing about the, the concept of what it really means. <laughs> yeah. But they're keen on the economy keeping going as usual. That's right. Yes. yes yeah. Yes. And that's well, Sweden's has Sweden has done that, but it it's had a, a very very high death rate, and it, you're really yeah, saying those who die are sacrificing for the common good or something. It's you know it's asking mm. people to die for the common good effectively. Oh yeah, well, that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. indeed, whether it is for the common good, because as you say, there's no guarantee it works anyway. Well, so far, it hasn't worked. It's for the good of people who profit from capital. Yes. 
<laughs> That's well, a cynical a... comment to uh, make, but... <laughs> Sorry. Well, well, I think we all thoroughly agree, yeah. But yeah. There, was a, there was a senator in the USA who, um, who came up with the idea that the oldies should um, be happy to, um, to uh, die for the good of the economy. He was the one who came up with the idea about, what, six weeks ago, I think. The governor of Texas said that, that's for sure. Oh, yeah, that's right. The yeah. Of Texas, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, all those good sudden, <laughs> sudden boys, good yeah. old boys. Yeah. <laughs> Their morals are wonderful, aren't they? Okay. Uh, there's well, they a go bloke. To, go on, yeah. go to church. They're, they're fine. That's true. That's true. So if you if you go to church, maybe those who go to church could be the ones who die because I'll go straight to heaven. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the way they see it, I think. And... Uh, <laughs> And of course, if they go to church, well, I won't. You can't get the virus in church. <laughs> <laughs> no, God, God wouldn't let it to happen. No, no, no. Uh, Kevin Donnelly is a very conservative writer on education. I think we, well, many people oh, would have yes. read his stuff. He, he's at the Australian Catholic University, but he wrote an amazing article this week in the Herald Sun of all places, of course. But because last week, Meg, we had Hanon who talked about. The, the fact that the federal government has, has pushed parliament back so it's not going to be sitting. And uh, this, was a, this yeah. is a real problem in terms of the money floating around, etc. But Donnelly's mm. come out and said, keeping Victorian schools shut and forcing students to remain home for another 10 weeks until the end, the start of term three, proves Premier Daniel Andrews is the odd man out and guilty of putting ego and politics ahead of what is best for families and students. Oh. And the fact that the ALP government has shut down Parliament, refuses to allow proper scrutiny of the additional billions spent that will bankrupt the state and introduce draconian and unnecessary quarantine measures, and it's clear Premier Andrews has overreacted. He then goes on to say how much he supports Prime Minister Scott Morrison stand, but he doesn't make the point that Morrison has done exactly the same thing. If Andrews has 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 um, has put Parliament out, mm -hmm. uh, shut mm -hmm. down Parliament, he doesn't. He praises Scott Morrison without saying Morrison too has shut down Parliament. Uh, me, isn't that curious? That's very odd. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. Now we know where Tian, you know, the uh, federal. Education Minister got his outburst from yesterday. You know, yesterday he was all over in yes. um, you know, trashing Victoria and saying how terrible Dan Andrews was. God. Uh, now we know where the his so-called information came from. He's obviously a close reader of Donnelly, uh. for God's sake. Um, but, uh. um, but, of course, he then had to retract what he said later in the day when it became apparent that, that uh, um, you know, the Premier had a point. You know the 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 school where issues arose, you know, and that's the school that's now going to be closed down for part of this week to be deep cleaned. You remember that? Uh, so Tim yeah, had that, to well, that, recall, re, you know, re retract his comments. But they Meadow sound Glen exactly Primary, like, it was, yeah. But they sound exactly like Donnelly's um, Donnelly's comments. So uh, that's a bit of a worry when the federal tra uh, education minister is um, listening to Kevin Donnelly. Yeah. Uh, yep. Well, business desperately, of course, wants to get everything back, including there's a story in this morning's Fin Review. I had a number of business people, but we might people might know Linton Crosby, who runs a a company yeah. that that runs election campaigns. So he he did Howard's campaigns. He's done a lot of the Conservatives. He he helped put Cameron in in Britain, etc. And he's come out saying that 
that we need business must fight bigger, bolder government uh, is the headline across this morning's Fin Review. And he says that the massive expansion of government had strong public support and people were trusting government again. This, he sees this as a oh. bad thing, though, you see. Oh, yeah, yeah. This, there has been a significant change, the Australian political consultant said. Government spending has become girth-busting and people were overwhelmingly, uh, overwhelmingly comfortable with that at this time. They're letting the government step into the economy more deeply and broadly than they have for a very long time. The willingness of the public to accept these interventions suggests that it may not be as simple as going back to normal. We won't be returning to the pan, the pre-pandemic position on people's views and expectations of government. And then he says business must fight, therefore, much, much harder to bring in tax to uh, those things that really matter, taxes, costs, regulation, productivity, competitiveness. And he's making the point that poor business is going to have a real fight on its hands to rest the whole rest people's views back to the great, great role of the free enterprise system. Well, oh, wow. Well, obviously, the assumption there is that, that of course, an economy and a society run by business is the best society we can have. The idea that there might be a bit of balance between, um, you know, the various sectors of the economy, of course, is um, an outrage to people like um, Crosby. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's been a few of them coming out, and uh, um, again in this morning's paper, I had other papers, but I, it's just this even this morning they turn up again. Gary Banks, who headed the Productivity Commission for oh, years, yeah. very conservative economist, he's come out and said, we need urgent work reforms. He's joining all those people saying we need major repairs of the workplace system, because at the moment, um, he says, he, he actually wrote a report on it for the Abbott government and recommended all sorts of things that haven't unfortunately been been brought into effect, like the boot, getting rid of the boot scheme, which is the better off overall test that no worker should be worse off under. under the, and they're all arguing now that that has to go, so some workers can be worse off, right. uh, etc. And you know, he needs we need in, we need individual flexibility through enterprise contracts as an alternative to enterprise bargaining. In other words, the boss is determining and screwing oh, workers okay. to a hilt. So, yeah. But can I, point out, yeah. can I point out that all during the last, well, say, 20 years when things have really gone, you know, very much the Conservatives' way, things like um, uh, productivity and efficiency in the economy have barely risen. Mm. I mean, all these things that are supposed to have made made this wonderful difference and made us such a much, much more efficient economy and, you know, all these, all these benefits we're supposed to have got, we really haven't got. And yet all these people no. are specifying is more of the same. Um, you know, but it, it, it really suggests that their ideology is, is really quite a long way from having any connection to reality, you know. Yeah. Uh, and they don't care. I mean, the fact that the fact that, that Crosby is identifying that people like the fact that the government's intervening more uh, as a bad thing, that suggests these people aren't remotely interested in having anything to do with reality. Mm. Well, also he implies that he implies that government is intervening in the economy, but of course business has screamed out for all the payouts government's given them. So it's business yeah. itself which is saying, come on, we now need suddenly, suddenly in a crisis, we need big government to help us out. It's only small government when they're, they're in control and there's no virus and there's no 
problem with the economy that um, doesn't doesn't prevent them from making well, their profits. Well if, well, if Crosby really thought his position through and was prepared to actually admit what it is, he'd rather see the economy, you know, and society collapse really into a heap. Than have government intervene yeah. and yeah. yeah, yeah, and and try to keep things going. You know, he'd really rather have the collapse, and uh, and then something better presumably would scramble out of the mess <laughs> that that would 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 result. And so yeah. we're managing, you know, we're managing in Australia, maybe hopefully to some degree, to stop things getting to a, to a state where everything is in, in a state of collapse. I you mean, can see, it. Be, yeah. No, I was just going to say you can see like it's interesting that that kind of neoliberal capitalist ideology is obviously deeply threatened by this moment. Yeah. Like, um, but at the same time, there's that concerning tendency that like governments around the world are taking this opportunity of things mm-hmm. being pretty chaotic and the governments in power having the authority to kind of make decisions without as much yeah. scrutiny as they might normally have. And so you see places like Brazil and Israel and other places like that that are making some yes. interesting, concerning decisions. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, uh, and I think you can expect almost any government that's in power to do that, whether they're a nice government or a horrible government. Though, yeah. There'll be a tendency to try and sneak things through under the... Yeah, under the, under the carpet because basically because everybody's focusing on on the huge huge problem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, indeed. Even here in Victoria. Yeah, even here in Victoria. Yeah, mm. and, and of course, course the, federal, um, the federal government. You know, remember all the things we were worried about pre pre virus, like Angus Taylor and a whole lot of other things. You know. Yeah. And those, all those things have sort of drifted, drifted away, really. Yeah. And every all we hear about really in the media is, you know, virus, virus, virus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, mentioning Brazil, Bolsonaro, he, he's making Trump almost look look consistent and <laughs> rational uh, with his performance. <laughs> but concerning. there's an interesting article. Thomas Friedman, one of the well-known old uh, journal, you know, quite conservative journalist and commentator in America, quite well known. Wrote an article last week, though, which opened with, with each passing day, it becomes more obvious how unlucky America is that one of the worst crises in its history coincides with Donald Trump's presidency. Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes on, goes on to say, to get out of this crisis with the least loss of life and least damage to the economy, America needs a president who can steer a science-based, non-partisan debate through the hellish ethical, economic and environmental trade-offs the nation has to make. We need a president who is a cross between FDR, Justice Brandeis, and Jonas Salk. It has a president who is a cross between Dr. Phil, Dr. Strangelove, and Dr. Seuss. <laughs> uh, I think Dr. Seuss, that's a bit unfair. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. And yeah. just to, to the next paragraph, I'll just finish here, but sure, Trump isn't the only one sowing division in society, but as president, he has a mega megaphone like no one else. So when he spews his politics of division and suggests disinfectants as cures, he is not only eroding American society's physical immunity to the coronavirus, but also eroding what futurist Marina Gorbis calls the nation's cognitive immunity, its ability to filter out science from quackery and facts from fabrication. So on he goes. So, But it's interesting that despite that, White Trump comes out and says, 
China, he now says he's got proof that it did escape from a laboratory in China, of course. We look forward to seeing that proof. But he's attacking China, he's attacked the World Health Organization, and within almost hours of him making those statements, Australia has come out and attacked the World Health Organization and has called for an inquiry into China. So we're still playing our yeah. our, our servile role to the United States. Yeah, that was pathetic. I thought I thought seeing Morrison come out and, and toadying up to Trump on that was um, seriously pathetic. And, of course, it's just got us into a spat with China, which yeah. we don't really need and nobody needs. Um, and, and, and they're all, again, you know, they're all, all the commentators and right-wingers are all rising up on their high horses and saying, oh, well, China deserves to have an independent inquiry. It was all their fault. And, you know... Mm-hmm. It's um, just, you know, just ridiculous. Yeah, and it's causing divisions here in a sense because Western Australia is so dependent upon China, particularly with its resource industry, and its government's come out saying the government, um, their, their Premier Mark McGowan, says the state's economy is on track to regain its fastest, its uh, footing faster than the eastern states and has warned against inflaming tensions with China, their biggest trading partner. And, of course, companies that have interest in Western Australia and China, like uh, Twiggy Forrest last week, Kerry Stokes, who runs the West Australian newspaper, they've all come out attacking the government as well and saying, no, 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 we must uh, we must be nice to China. Yeah, so well, it is causing divisions among well, that lot. Well, it is interesting. I mean, I think the mining in Western Australia has pretty much gone on as normal. It hasn't really been very badly affected. And so that is a huge part of our exports and a huge part of our economy and for the government, a huge part of their tax tax income too so mm. you know, there is a there is a point to saying hey be careful about you know upsetting china too much in this situation because they are damn important to australia yeah that's right and we're just we're just following the the united states unfortunately yeah. as we say in the red by yeah. a maniac yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah well it's it's, yeah. it's apparently even though what's the um, the foreign um, secretary in the u.s called the secretary of state He's claiming it came out of a laboratory in China, but I don't know. Um, scientists from other parts of the world have had a look at the same evidence and said, no, there's no evidence that came out of a, a laboratory that it almost... Well, the same, day that, the same day that Trump said he had proof, and now you've got Mike Pompeo saying he has proof yeah. as well, which would be the same proof as Donald's got, yeah. uh, their own... Sp- their own security network came out and said it, it's obviously man-made and, and not, it's, uh, sorry, not man-made, it's mm, obviously yeah, come from yeah. natural causes mm. or unnatural perhaps. Uh, and again, this last week, because he's so consistent, Donald, the same day that Trump said the American stock market has had its best day since the 50s or even the 40s was his words, uh, the the, uh, the economic community itself came out and said they're heading for the worst depression since the 30s. Well, mm-hmm. so, well, during was it during March or April? There was, you know, the stock market went went up a lot again, which seems bizarre to the rest of the world. But apparently, there were uh, reasons within America to make that happen. So, so, so Trump was able to say again, "Oh, look, we're doing wonderfully. It's all happening." But then I think it's all already starting to collapse again. It's a, the idea that the stock yeah. market is a measure of economic exactly. well-being is nuts anyway because the stock market thrives when people are exploited, basically, mm-hmm. and, yeah. like, you can, yeah. yeah. It's a casino, yeah. 
It's a casino. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. since just the last couple of days, Trump's yeah. come out and said it will be absolutely on, it'll be firing on all cylinders by late in the year, the fourth quarter, which of course is when his election is. But uh, uh, I think he's being, a, the, again, yeah, the economic community come out and said him. that there was a touch doubtful, they said, uh, the economic community. Maybe it won't be on all firing on all, but firing on no cylinders. <laughs> but there we are. All right, we're going to go on to transport. Just before we do, a couple of things. It was May Day last week, and there was also the annual ceremony of workers killed at work, which always understates the numbers because it doesn't take into account those who die of you know, coronary diseases or, uh, or infections caught at work of other diseases, of cancers, etc., that go back to their workplaces. So none of that gets counted. But a couple of more workers were injured and killed last week, and... Um, and again, they just get a few paragraphs in the paper and no television cameras at their funerals, unfortunately. Um, but also, I wanted to raise the fact that this Friday, and there was there was there's been a people meeting for the last year planning a, a big celebration, which had to be now be dropped. But next, or commemoration rather than more than celebration, I suppose. Uh, next Friday is the 50th anniversary of the Vietnam Moratorium. Oh wow! And it was going to be celebrated because it, it played at such a key. It was the first really big 100,000-plus protest we've had. You know, there were lots of protests and political activities in Australia, obviously, up till then. But this one set the pattern for, for since then, yeah. so many huge protests and demonstrations that happened. And plus, it played a key role in what in the fine, in ending the Vietnam War eventually. But uh, Oh, it's worth mentioning because it was a it was a seminal, I think, role in Australian protest that Vietnam moratorium at that time. So mm. there we are. Was that the one there with um, with the deputy prime minister at the time, Jim Jim Cairns? Jim Cairns, yeah. That one, yeah, yep. oh, yep. up up in front on the truck, yep, but surrounded by warpies as bodyguards. <laughs> Uh, Reggie feeling, Mack and a couple of other blokes, yeah. I have a feeling I might have been there. Yeah. Yes. No, that was a key yeah. part of uh, of our lives, I guess, the whole that whole period. But anyway, it's the yeah, 50th anniversary. Unfortunately, it can't be celebrated as a, a joint venture by people, but I'm sure it'll be remembered in some ways. And I, I, given the previous week, we saw little kids with slouch hats and medals every day in the particularly the Murdoch media leading up to Anzac Day and telling us how to celebrate it while we can't actually go out together. Uh, I was waiting last week for all these kids in union badges and union flags for May Day, but and this week I suppose we'll see lots of people with moratorium badges and and peace <laughs> symbols, etc., leading up to uh, Friday's celebration and how we can celebrate it in the papers. Oh, yeah. I'm sure we'll see that. Yeah. Actually, yeah, um, this a slight counterpoint. You know the. People got went out at uh, the time of the dawn service and stood in the street with a candle and things. So that apparently was yeah. very, very moving, people told me, in their streets. You know, it didn't happen to me. I was curled up in bed asleep. But there were plenty of people apparently who did, did go out in their street at dawn and um, listen to the last post and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, apparently. And some people did actually go to the, the shrine. Uh-huh. Uh, when they sh- when they shouldn't have, but the coppers just came and talked to them and they didn't book anybody. Unlike the protest against refugees, against oh, yeah. refugees being held in a hotel at Preston, where people in cars, quite distant from themselves, all got fined, and 
course, mm-hmm. the le- one of them has been charged with incitement. So, slightly different attitude there. Slightly different attitude. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. Look, John, it's, it's moving on. We've um, we've raved on long, well long enough. Uh, we'll take a quick break, come back, and we're going to talk to John about transport. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Okay, we're back here with Transport. John McPherson on the, um, on the line with us today. John, as I, we said earlier, no one seems to be using public transport. Does this mean, and I, I, I'm not sure of this, that if the state still ran it itself, but they hadn't handed it over to a private company to run the service, that it would be losing the money that's not coming into the cash box because people aren't using it, so the fare drop, you know, the fare in, fare take drops substantially. But in this case. Because it's privatised, they're going, not only going to lose all that, or the state's going to lose all that, but they'll have to compensate in some way or pay the profits for the private companies over and above. I'm pretty sure they'll have to pay the pay the make up the difference to the to the private operators. Yeah, that the private operators what? won't be allowed. Yeah, they won't be allowed to cop all the, or they won't have to cop all the all the collapse in revenue. No. Um, because the government. Why do perf- they? Why do they privatise things? Well, exactly. Why do they but sell it, things? But it means that the private operators would probably threaten to walk away if they didn't get compensated. When it goes on like this for a period of you know months. Uh, I'd love so that. Think, so yeah, I know. But the government. They can go. Want, the government doesn't want them to walk away. The government. The government wants them there. Thank you very much. So there will be an there will be an arrangement worked out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it, it, again, it, no, again, know. it highlights it highlights the the anomalies in this in yeah. this so-called binary situation where yeah, where no, like, like yeah. if something goes wrong, no, who who do you blame, the government yeah. or the yeah. private company? And yeah. similarly, in this situation, it, it'd be much cheaper for the government to just own it itself and run it itself. Yeah, that's right. But then, then of course, it wouldn't be able to say to the to the complaining populace. You know, oh, well, blame the operator, don't blame us, you see. But that's the advantage of this current system for the government, that they put a bit of distance between them and the um, operations, yeah. I guess governments also can't really get away with, like, cutting the amount of employees that you have and, you know, yeah, like um, automating everything and having these, like, systems which are just basically, like, cost-saving, like, efficiencies yeah. Um, if you're a government, you kind of have this responsibility to pay people properly and have yeah. enough staff and stuff yes, like that. That's right. So you can't. You can't. That's how they people. kind of. Yeah, that's right. You can't lay yeah. people off and all that sort of thing as easily if you're a government. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. that's another part of what government yeah. like about this um, system of having these um, private operators, yeah, who are supposed to be so much more efficient than government. And of course, that's a yeah, that's a what do you call it a. Um, that's a bit, of a, bit of a false economy. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, so, you know, we go on with these in- interesting 
interesting arrangements that are that are part of the late twentieth century. Uh, mm. um, uh, lash, lash up, shall we call it? Yeah. So what is what do you think, Kevin? Well, yeah, I'm just I just think that's I just think it's another just a, a perfect case for why the state should run it itself. And of course, there was a campaign two years ago now, wasn't it? I think late, maybe late eighteen or something, late seventeen or eighteen. When it had it, they had to be renewed. There was quite a strong campaign, including the union, which is an affiliate of the ALP anyway, to have the state take them back. But the state instead did sign the contracts with these companies again, well, and well, the state, they were extremely yeah. lucrative. Well, the state didn't show the slightest sign of you know being interested in taking them back. It was no. running a, running a million miles. Of course, it was. Yeah. Can we, is, is there any examples of transport systems anywhere in the world that have been privatised and gone back into public um, governance? There, there would have been. There, there are. Um, there are some that have never gone into public right public ownership too. Uh, sorry, private? I beg your right. pardon, into private yep. ownership from public ownership, yeah. Yeah. Um, because they were they were run effectively by the government. I mean, it right. depends a lot on having the right sort of management, finding the right people, having the right sort of structures and um, all, all of those sort of things. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's it's it can be hard it can be hard to work that out because a lot of the arrangements are historical for a lot of systems, you know, systems that have been around for 100 years or more. The sort of arrangements are are, are clunky for the way things are done, you know. Mm. Um, and sometimes sometimes the political um, is hand, very hands-on in the way things are run and sometimes it's not. Um, there are parts of Europe where, oh, thanks for yawning, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for yawning, Meg. <laughs> um, Not your uh, fault, John. I'm listening. Uh, it must be me. It must be me. Um, I haven't had any caffeine today. That's all. Oh, I that's say. ridiculous. Usually, I get a green tea when I come into the studio. <laughs> I've had nothing. No one's offered me anything. Okay. No one's given me a. I'll just take a sip all. of this white tea at the moment. <laughs> I'm just going to take a sip of this white tea while you're chatting away. Here we go. You're off the leash, Meg. Mm. It wasn't your. <sighs> it was definitely my fault. Anyhow. Some European countries and some of the Asian countries seem to have efficient public transport run by the run by the government. It can be done, um, but it does does seem to be hard to do, and it's pretty hard not to not not to get the politics you know the politics get involved very deeply in things, and that can be that can be quite quite bad. But um, right. I don't know. In Australia, I think how a lot of the problem is that. No, no governments are really convinced that public transport is actually vital to the way their cities run. Maybe Sydney is more these days because Sydney, Sydney is a you know a very con- big congested place with with quite a lot of density, uh, more density than we've got. Although we're, our size of city, we're catching up fast to Sydney, um, mm. and and slowly I think you know the message is dawning. We have to do public transport well. Uh, you know, we we will have to in the future as well as you know do better than we've done in the past. Um, yeah. A problem we've faced here for years, that we've talked about before, John, is that 
when you have Vic roads with all these engineers in all yeah. these floors of a building organising roads and very efficient at getting their way, for many years the the bureaucracy, the top bureaucracy anyway, there were a lot of people in there who really cared, but the top bureaucracy at the public transport authorities really were quite moribund and, and didn't really fight for their own cause. And that was a problem for a long time. Yeah, very true. Um, I, that's a sort of an interesting historical thing that somehow the road authority in Victoria um, that was the arrangements, you know, 50 years ago, they were quite quite efficient by some good luck or good management. They were quite efficient. And I think they were able to put forward their plans for a road network in a more effective way to the bureaucrats uh, and to the politicians, obviously. And so it, it, they all always wanted to respond to those people, to the road engineers, because they were selling a good story about what was needed for our, for the big city, uh, whereas the Victorian railways had just ground along, you know, for 100 years and uh, just continued to do what they'd always done, pretty much, because the big, the big dose of electrifying the rail network in Melbourne all happened back in the 1920s and the 1930s. So there was nothing really modern or exciting happening in the, in the rail network. And particularly, even back then, of course, our governments were mostly conservative governments and they had a lot of influence from country interests. Somebody like Balti, for instance, might have been a Liberal, but he was a country Liberal. And he, he was one who resisted very much spending any more, more money than he absolutely had to on the, on the rail network because he regarded it as old-fashioned and not necessary. So there was a, there was a, lot, of, a lot of resistance to improving the railway. And, you know, the first thing they did when, when um, I think Hamer probably was the one who instituted the plan for the city loop, and that was the first real modernising um, uh, project for public transport in Melbourne. When was that, John? Well, that, all, that started in the late, in the 60s, in the mid to late 60s, and didn't really finally fin fully open until about 1980 or 1981. And that was a massive, very expensive project. And the road interests, um, both... Um, the, you know, the road bureaucracy, uh, even the um, academics who were interested in engineering, the engineering academics, a lot of them, they all fought the idea of spending the money on the city loop. You know, they regarded that as a very bad way to spend money when you could have spent it on more motorways. But it, it happened because I think the feeling was, and I think it might have been Hamer, that, that, that some money had to start to be spent on the, uh, on the um, electric electrified rail system, which hadn't changed very much since the 1920s. And, of course, speaking of Balti, while our governments say they really at the end have to have a surplus for some silly reason, he, he ran a massive debt. He had a debt of about 36% or something. Yeah. But if it wasn't going to public transport, you know, so much of it, of course, was going to the roads, which ultimately, as you say, the good story they bring to government, unfortunately, they end up being the sclerotic disaster that we now have on our roads. That's right. Yeah, well, well of course, back then, there, you know, the issue 
wasn't really there. Or like, what didn't come, it came not that long later when they started to realise it didn't matter how big you built your motorways, they were still going to block, block up at peak hours at least. But it was pretty much impossible to build your way out of, out of congestion. You, by producing more roads, you just encourage more people to drive to work rather than take public transport to work. And, and that's, that's we, we, like every other big city in the world, pretty much prove that's the case. Yeah. So what's so, um, in this current on, moment, um, looking at the empty trains and empty buses, mm. do we know what the impact is and what might happen from that? Because it's pretty extreme in terms of like mm. any kind of industry or um, organisation that was facing that level of a lack I, of, of yeah, use. Yeah. No, Especially I, for employees of these businesses. You're totally right. I, I, I don't think we can really predict what's going to happen. Um, I, I think it's, it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, which, which organisations and companies, say, decide that they can allow a lot more of their workers to work from home um, normally. And, and then, of course, it's an issue of how many, how, how many of your employees want to work from home. Or they, do they want to go to work? So yeah, and then there's the then there's as I was talking about just before the balance between whether people are having to use public transport because the roads are so congested, or whether they will, you know, in a different, slightly different future, be able to drive. Maybe businesses will realise they don't need to be as centralised in the CBD because that's been something that's happened over the last twenty or thirty years. Um, employment is, as really ramped up in the CBD, which is one of the reasons why, you know, even our governments have had to acknowledge they had to improve public transport, at least for the CBD. But, see, that might turn around now and do what was predicted 50 years ago, which was that employment would, would spread out right across the metropolitan area and there wouldn't be any need for a big, a big uh, massive um, hub in the centre. So, yeah, it's, I, I, I don't think we can know. I think it'll... It'll just have to happen. A lot of the decisions will be made by companies. A lot of the decisions will be made by various companies. What they decide to do, you know, whether they can they can save money and maybe run more efficiently if they're based, you know, less less focused on the city and you know out in the suburbs. I don't know. Mm. A lot will depend on on people getting how quickly people get back onto public transport, and that's just not going to happen while the virus is still around uh, at the moment. But even uh, even if we get to a point where they say, okay, you can go out and do what you like, virus cleared, uh, will it might take time for people to get back onto public transport to the level they have. Well, especially if public transport was as crowded as it was before the virus struck. I mean, mm. most trains and trams, not so much buses, but some buses, but trains and trams were very crowded and, and they're, you know, the, the fleets of train services and tram services hadn't been improved much in the last few years. And so a very crowded train or a very crowded tram, you know, it, it, you, you stand there and you think, gee, I'm, you know, I'm really in the firing line if there's somebody around here with spreading the virus, yeah. And that's, that's been yeah. the case for some time, like a, mm -hmm. like a, a peak hour, you yes. couldn't even get on some trains. Correct. And then 
yeah, so then really we need more services running more often and with like a greater capacity. But in this instance, if it goes on for months and months and months that basically no one's using these services, what's going are they going to are they going to stop running or are they, well, going they will, to, how are they going to be? Well if it goes on for months and months that the government and the operators probably won't be able to resist the idea of at least cutting back peak hour services to some some extent. But yeah. of course, if you start cutting back the public transport services, well, as we know, that makes them less attractive and then encourages yes. people to think even more about, you know, travelling in their little capsule in their car. I feel for the drivers as well, like driving a bus around mm. a, a, ro- a route and having one person on and driving the rest of the time for no reason almost. They do a lot of that now. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so our bus, our bus, our bus networks are, are I don't know they're um, they're pretty sad and sorry and not very well well organised. Um, but at least on some of the trams, the drivers are now fairly isolated from the passengers. Yes. Um, yes. Fairly fairly safe, I guess. Goldman Sachs came out last week, John. Um, well, they're a, they're they a say, public transport. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, Goldman Sachs. Yeah, well, but it was. That they said use of private vehicles will become an increasingly more important form of transport as commuters will probably remain hesitant to get back on trains and buses while the virus is still circulating. For Australia, we expect this to drive a relatively sharp near-term recovery in toll road commuter traffic as business restrictions are lifted. And this was about poor old transurban saying their, their income has dropped, but they're, they're thinking it's going to get better in the future. And of course... You must have been thrilled, John, that Transurban, to celebrate or to, to show its commiserations for people suffering at the moment, put up its prices yet again by the full amount. Oh, okay. There was no, there was no intention to have a lost leader because, um, because um, usage had dropped so much that they had to encourage people back. No, that's right. no they put them up. Right. <laughs> and the... The freight industry has come out and said there should be some concessions for them because they pay most of it, of course. Uh, but thus, thus far, Transurban hasn't relented. They're, oh, they're okay. charging them full fees. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, that means that that, that proves that, that Transurban is not a competitive company. It's a, um, it's a, what do you call it? What do you, lost a monopoly. A, a monopoly. monopoly. Oh, thank you, a monopoly. <laughs> that's the crude way of putting it, Kevin. It's a monopoly. And it's just proved that it's monopoly because they've judged that the the traffic will come back fast enough for for them to be worse to be better off by putting up the the, the fee by the full amount they're allowed to. Yeah, that's that's classic actually. There's a double page spread in this morning's Herald Sun, the, uh-huh. that famous paper, um, with with photos of traffic congestion. Thousands of motorists are returning to Melbourne roads as data shows traffic is rising again despite the coronavirus restrictions. Figures collected by technology company Real Time Traffic reveal the number of cars travelling along 10 of the city's busiest routes increased by as much as 15% during the last week of April. But that 15%, by the way, is on a a low starting point because they had dropped off Mm -hmm. substantially. But nonetheless, they say people are coming back to it, yeah. Yeah, no, let's... It's um, well. You see, people haven't been stopped really from going out and doing going doing business driving or or going really going shopping if the, if they knew where they were going was going to be open. You know, like like Bunnings, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, there's I don't think Bunnings has slowed down at all. 
uh, it's um, it's been busy, busy, busy. I suspect. So you know, there's there's been a lot of um, a lot of attraction for people to go driving. Um, yeah, it's more attractive than getting on a public transport or something like that. Oh hell yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, particularly at the moment when you know you can you know drive down a motorway with no um, with no congestion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ah oh dear, strange times. Mentioned yes. something, a sort of a good news story in a way. The fact that yes, the please. Mm. on city limits, John, be careful. The first electric, the first electric bus has been um, bought from Melbourne. Imagine, oh. yeah, good timing. Trans Transdev, who want, runs a lot of our buses, particularly in the Doncaster corridor, have um, acquired a fully electric bus. It's not a hybrid. It runs entirely on batteries and. Um, uh, it's taken a long time to get here. I mean, you know, China's had electric buses for, I don't know, getting on for a decade, and they've got tens of thousands of buses. And here we are in, you know, progressive Melbourne. We've finally got our first electric bus, and it'll be running on the Doncaster routes for Transdev. And, they, and everybody's really surprised how quiet it is. There's no vibration. Mm-hmm. It's smooth. All the things that, you know... All the things you get out of an electric bus that you never get out of a diesel bus, and they're really quite quite surprised to find out how good it is. <laughs> is it just the one? Just the one at the moment. Oh yes, we can't can't go too fast. It's got to fit in with Melbourne conditions. Melbourne's different to everywhere else. You realise that means you you know nothing can happen fast here. It's always got to happen very slowly and carefully. Yeah. On the topic of sort of like sustainable um, renewal, using renewable energy for mm-hmm. transport and things like that, some people are anticipating that this moment with the coronavirus will result in an inc- a faster evolution into renewables and that like was it England that had recently gone a, yep. quite a significant number of days without yes. using any coal-fired power? Correct. Correct. Yeah, the Brits... The Brits, in some ways on renewable stuff, in some parts of the renewable story, they've been surprisingly good. Mm. They've got lots of wind power. Uh, you know, we know all know about the breezes in the UK. There is the wind place, but, <laughs> but they've also got lots of solar. I think, I think um, these days Scotland runs entirely on renewable energy most of the time and the British mm. have managed to, to do it on quite a few days um, Recently, the whole the whole of the UK, I think. Uh, yeah. Ireland Ireland is also can, at times runs on very high proportion of renewable renewable mm. energy. Um, they're not so hot on electric cars um, either. They're better than we are. We're the we're the worst in the in the in the Western world, I think, on electric cars. We just we seem to have so many troglodytes in the federal government that don't don't regard changing over to uh, renewable energy uh, mm. a worthwhile thing. But and probably a pretty like, powerful car lobby and well, well, not anymore. fuel lobby. Not anymore because we don't make cars here anymore. Mm. And um, so you would think that the, the, the governments would be able to look at the, you know, the, the very many good things about electric cars now and mm. not so worried about the... Um, the you know what what what's going to happen to the old um, fossil fuel car car industry, but so far there hasn't been much of a much of a movement. 
Well, we're, we're also way behind in terms of our of our emission controls as well. Our emission rules right. here are, are, are much more, much worse from our point of view, much more dangerous than most countries which have much stronger emission rules, even with fossil cars. Yeah, mm. we, our um, our our fuel is is allowed to be much dirtier than the fuel around again most of the Western world, and the government has said, "Oh no, we have to keep the fuel cheap, and we can't possibly." expect the oil refineries in Australia to um, to improve the fuel they're refining to the high, higher standards. Um, and again, that's just meaning that they're condemning the cities particularly to um, worse pollution. And I think the same applies for diesel fuel as well as petrol. So the, um, the particulate uh, pollution is the issue with diesel, diesel fuel. And our, our uh, diesel fuel has a lot a lot bigger particulates in it, which uh, makes it much less um, much less safe to breathe. Not that diesel diesel fumes are ever safe to breathe. Mm. Uh, um, we're getting close to the hour. Um, for those listening, this is City Limits, and we're here with John McPherson. We're talking about transport. Kevin, did you have any like last questions or? Just one thing, John, we'll have to do it very briefly, but you you mentioned to me a quite awful story. Uh, A a woman train driver on that Wallen-Seymour route you mentioned to me uh, has been diagnosed with breast cancer and has been put down to driving trains over that line. Mm, No, not quite, Kevin, not quite. I don't believe she's... No, she... It's a story that revolves around the, the fact that that northeast line, the line from Melbourne up to Seymour and then up to Albury, has um, been in very, very rough condition for the last decade. And it means that the trains, the locomotives and the, you know, the, the, carriage, the carriages and the wagons being hauled behind them have all had a very rough ride on this very rough track. And one of the few V-line female train drivers has had to cut short her career and um, and is making claims against V-Line and, and against the uh, tra- train operator because she says, well, you know, she's, she's had it confirmed by her medical, her medical um, consultants that uh, her body was thrown around so much in the cab that she's had this really quite alarming in- injuries done to her breasts. Um, ah, right. And the... The, um, the rough ride and the shuddering and shaking has led to her having, she couldn't, it took a long time to identify uh, what was going on apparently because she was in pain but nobody could identify what was causing it. But her breasts have actually to some degree started, the, the muscles holding the breast to the uh, chest wall started to um, um, weaken and then collapse. And so she's, she's uh, had this long-term shocking um, sort of injury that's, you know, apparently very unusual. Hmm. Uh, and um, she was told, I'll start wearing something like a sports bra that'll give you better support and things like that. But that didn't, that didn't solve the issue. So it is interesting that here we have a case of, of that rough track that, that has been an issue for well over a decade. Was uh, this the track that was involved in an accident recently? Correct, correct. yes. Mm. Yeah. Uh, has has led to some very unusual, well, we hope unusual issues yeah. for drivers, and she's had mm. a real battle to get compensation and, and mm. 
because, of course, so we, we wish her luck. Would expect that, yeah. We certainly do yeah. wish her luck, and we certainly hope that she's able to restore her health. Yeah, on that not so cheery note, we'll uh, have to wind up the program. Meg, you can let people know other ways of hearing us because I can never say all those things. Yeah, you can listen to City Limits online at 3cr.org.au and you can podcast us. <laughs> right. Okay, next week it's uh, it's energy and hopefully we'll be back again. So, uh, John, thanks for being on today. Thanks for coming on under these rather difficult circumstances. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.